So Karen read for us this morning our passage, which is sort of the second half of the passage that we began last week. If this is your first time in a while, or if you haven't been here before, this is going to be new to you. There we go. We're in the middle of a, we're at the end of a sermon series called Forward Together. It is only a three-part series, and so if it flew by without you realizing it, I understand. Um, But it was a a three-part series, and we called it Forward Together. And a couple weeks ago, I talked about the analogy of a renovation, where sometimes in a house, although it's nice to live there and you have what you need, you still do a little bit of repair in areas that need a facelift, or maybe there's a leaky something, um, or you need a new window. So we kind of get that, especially here in North America. We're big renovation people. And Evergreen Chapel was due for some renovations, some work that needed to be done a long time ago, and we sort of let sit because we were doing other things. And so now, as part of this series and going forward, we're kind of rebuilding some areas that needed some help. And so this, this series is really an integral part of, of uh, what it means to actually belong to this church. And so if you belong, if you consider this church home, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those previous two sermons. And they're entitled, they're under the category of Forward Together on our podcast, which is at podbean.com slash evergreenchapel. And it's also on iTunes. But I really, uh, I believe that you can't really know what we're about until you hear um, these messages kind of as a triune uh, tone of rebuilding here at Evergreen. So check those out. Our first one was on eldership. It was called, What About Elders? Our second sermon in this series was about serving, called What About Serving? You can see a theme coming through. And third, today, um, our, our theme is genuine love, and it's called, guess what? What about <laughs> love? What about love? What about love? If we're going forward together, we need to ask the question, what about love? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if I don't have love, I'm like a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. And I was at a wedding once where the MC smashed a symbol. I don't even remember the, what the reason was, but it was so obnoxious that we had to tell the MC that that joke was over because a clashing symbol doesn't help anybody. And in fact, it hurts the ears. And so we as a church, we don't want to resound like a smashing symbol or a clanging gong. We want to have love. And so this passage really concludes with the question, what does real Christian community look like? What is the cultural flavor of our church? And this might sound a bit like, is that a Christian question? But no matter what, if you have ever visited another family, if you've ever visited another church, if you've ever gone to another office outside of your own or a different town even, culture is inevitable. The way people speak, their attitudes, the way they talk, the way they interact, um, how they think about each other, that's what culture is. Culture is everywhere all the time. you, You can't do without it, but you can talk about how can our culture be the way a Christian culture should look. And so part of this series is really about culture building in a biblical sense. And so what should a genuine Christian community look like? The short answer is genuine love. Genuine love. And okay, that's easy to say, very easy to say that and. Doesn't every community want to be known by genuine love? Isn't that just 
That kind of goes without saying, if you're human, genuine love should be your goal. And in fact, I think that that's a title that is really coveted right now. It's a term that is almost in a, in a tug of war right now between warring worldviews. What is genuine love? What does it mean to be a loving person? What does it also mean to be an unloving person? And the Bible, thankfully, guides us through this. The context of Romans 12, Romans 12 is a mutual gathering. It's a mutual being together as the community of God, as his people, as the church. It gives great thought and description to our interconnectedness and our mutual membership. This is why if you belong to this church, you, you have to hear these messages. You can't go on not recognizing how we feel about membership, how we feel about gathering, how we feel about being together. You'll never know and you'll be missing something. And so we want to make sure that we're on the same page. But that's the context. It's that because God has done great things for his glory, the church then gathers for that same purpose, to strive for the glory of God. And we do it by serving him and serving each other. And so we have this divine purpose as we get together. The text that we're looking at this morning offers us the proof and the application of what genuine love is. We're going to conclude with three significant observations that we need to embrace as a Christian community. And what we want to strive for is to align ourselves as a genuine Christian community expressed by genuine love. And you'll hear that word a lot. And I pray that you would detach any cliches or um, biases that you might have for or against that word. We want to look at it through the lens of scripture. What is love actually like? So there's three questions this text really answers for us. Number one, well, the question is, how should this love be expressed? We're talking about what about love? How are we going to move forward as a loving community? How should this love be expressed? Number one is with careful thought to how we relate to those who are inside the church. That's how love is expressed, with genuine and careful thought to how we relate to those who are inside the church. Now, you can't miss this phrase right at the beginning, let love be genuine in your ESV Bibles. Karen had a different um, version and it was slightly different, but my Bible says, let love be genuine. Oh, that word is so good. Have you ever looked on the inside of a jacket thinking that you bought a leather one and it says bonded leather or pleather or something else? And you, whoa, I thought it was genuine. Genuine is, is what we go for as human beings. It's what matters to us. Uh, nobody is pleased to find out that they had the counterfeit version. So let love be genuine, Paul says here in Romans 12, 9. His foremost command is to let your love be genuine, to let it be real, to let it be possessing the characteristics of that which is legitimate, okay, which also suggests that there might be counterfeit forms of love. But this is really the overarching command for this passage. For this entire section of scripture, that is what we can set as an umbrella for everything that he says, every command there. And as Karen read, you meant, wow, like rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, contribute to the needs of the saints, pray consistently. There's just a huge list here of Christian activity. It's like the application 101 section of your Bible, how to be a Christian. It's right here. But what we need to recognize is those are not just independent commands and a bunch of stuff you need to try to do. These are the ways that love becomes genuine. Paul says, let love be genuine. And if you are to achieve that, 
These are the ways, these are the things you're going to have to look out for and the things you're going to have to practice. Now, if anyone on earth should be careful about having and making sure that love is genuine among us, I think it should be us because our Bibles tell us that our God is love. He's not just loving, but our God is love. And if we claim to worship that God and love is somehow lacking or is indifferent or false or counterfeit, it's a really weak testimony to the God that we serve. In fact, it's an unfaithful and it's an inaccurate one. Because no matter how bad the church is, God is still the God of love. And so I pray that as a community, as a faith community of God's people, our love is such that we speak to the existence of a loving God. Okay, and people are going to see that one way or another, and I pray that it's through our church. So this command to, to make sure that love is genuine begins with a moral command. It begins with a moral directive. It begins with common moral conviction. Remember, these are not individual commands. This is not just for you to go home and say, well, I need to make sure my life is right in these ways and not wrong in these ways. This is a community. This is a spoken in the context of a gathering of people. So these are all plural commands. This is not just for you in your private mind. This is you in the context of your church. Abhor what is evil, which means to hate it. Hate what is evil and love and hold fast to what is good. Possess it and protect it if it's good and push it away and reject it if it's evil. This is in the context of the gathered church, of the body. It's a mutual understanding and agreement and conviction about what is worthy and what is unworthy. I think a community that's divided about what is good and what is evil will never stand together. So Paul first says, let there be a common moral conviction among you. And you know what? That takes work. That doesn't just happen overnight. Our body continues to evolve. Some people join the body and they have their own spiritual background. They have their own baggage. They have their own experiences and things that might seem totally evil to you. They're very used to. And we have a tendency to judge those people, don't we? Oh, why they are so immoral as Christians. It takes work to get to this. It takes work to teach and speak and love to one another about what is pure and good and true and then about what is unworthy and what needs to be shed from our lives. And so we need to hold fast to what is good, to have a common moral flavor and conviction among us. And so he goes on to say um, how, how we go about our business with one another. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another with showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Did you get all that? Are you ready to just fly out of these doors and apply that? The command here is really to give careful thought to how we relate to people that we're in the church with. If, if your church mindset is to show up and be isolated and talk to nobody and have no interaction and then zip out because you've got your little sermon and you feel better. And I'm not trying to shame you if that's the way you think. Some of us are more shy, have a hard time getting involved in community. And I understand that. Okay, I don't want to make you feel bad about that. But what the Bible says is that we need to pursue, even when it's uncomfortable, thinking about other people in this way. So we go about our business with brotherly affection, which is sort of 
not brotherly in the pure masculine sense, but brotherly as in familial, as in brother, sister, mom, dad. And we go about it with active affection, with zeal, with fervency. Do you know what fervor is? So there's a difference between somebody who goes through like maybe reading an instruction booklet out loud and somebody who fervently urges you to do something. Fervency is like an intensity. It's like a passion directed behind an idea. And Paul says that we need to be fervent as we live in Christian community. And I want to maybe ask you, where in your life are you most fervent? Where does your fervency go? Where do you channel your greatest passions? For a lot of us, that's in things totally unrelated to God. It might be our hobby. It might be our sports team. It might be our homes, getting them perfect. We're, we're most fervent as we try to perfect our own world sometimes. And, and we all have ebbs and flows of what that looks like. But Paul says your community ought to be fervent toward one another. You should be passionate about loving each other, about showing affection for each other. I just want to remind you that this is a series called Forward Together. If we're going to move forward as a church, these are the things that we need to dedicate ourselves to. We won't be a church that ever uh, impacts our community. We won't, we won't ever make new disciples if we don't do these things as a church. I love this, I love this verse, uh, this phrase, outdo each other in showing honor. I love that. And Sometimes as a Christian community, we're a bit awkward about honoring each other sometimes. It's like, well, only Jesus is worthy of honor. Or only, you know, only God ought to be praised in any way. And yet Paul says your community ought to be defined by showing each other honor and actually outdoing each other in honor, which means to speak highly of other people, to give testimony to their Christian witness, to give testimony to the good things that they have done, to thank them to be thankful to each other for the way that we have served each other. And I've seen that really beautifully in this church where people get down and humble and serve each other in each other's homes or in different ways and to say thank you. And then to even brag about that to others. Like, you don't know what these people did for me. Like, Christ was so merciful to me through them. To outdo each other in showing honor, to, to lift up the people around you rather than lifting up yourself. Because... That doesn't rob Christ of his honor because we again realize that the context of our passage teaches us that Jesus is the one who made this community. And so if this community is existing in a way that honors each other, loves each other, serves each other, builds and lifts each other up, Christ does get honor because he is the author of that. So we even honor God in the way we treat one another. And so how should this love be expressed? Number one, with careful thought to how we relate to those who are inside the church. Sometimes it's hardest to get along with Christians. I don't know why that is, but it, it can be true. We can butt heads. And so Paul says here in this passage, don't let this be so. Work hard at loving each other and showing fervency in that. Number two, how should this love be expressed? With careful thought as to how we express our beliefs. How we express our beliefs. This is in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I don't want you to see these commands as, again as independent, as sort of like a shotgun blast of different pellets. 
I want you to see this as a unified call to externalize and to practice your beliefs. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. It's a threefold description of our doctrine externalized. Our doctrine externalized. The things that we say we believe about God, that we sing about believing about God, the things that we pray, the the way we are informed by his word should have practical implications for how we live our lives, right? Let love be genuine. Let it be genuine. Don't let it be false. And so when it comes to these things, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be consistent in prayer, we have to recognize that Christian thought cannot be separated from lifestyle, especially as a gathered community. Our attitudes and our outlooks are shaped by what we believe about God. And so what is the tone of a community who believes in resurrection, the return of Christ, the forgiveness of sin, and the redemption of all mankind? What is the flavor of that church? Hope. It's hope. If you really believe that there's a resurrection, that Christ is returning, that, that you have been redeemed, that your sin is forgiven, and that God is advancing his kingdom in the world, what should the, our, our attitude be? What should our ethos and our and our mood and our culture, what should it be like? It should be a rejoicing. I don't know if you've ever been inside a church where it's all doom and gloom and it's all, you know, watch out for the bad guy and it's all, you know, things are getting so bad and it's all uh, critical and it's all negative. There is a time and a place for correction and for warning and for all of these things. But Paul says in general, the ethos of your church should be rejoicing in hope. Let us be a community that rejoices, that actually lives like we have a God who loves us. How are we going to move forward together? Rejoicing in hope. And so the interesting thing here is that, again, you can't separate this because hope creates patience, doesn't it? If you have a hope in something you cannot see, it builds patience into the things that are difficult. It builds patience into the things that seem to contradict our hope. And patience requires prayer. As long as you are being, as long as you are patiently enduring difficulty, and in this context, persecution, if you are patiently going through that and having anxiety about that and struggling through that, you know what you need? You need to be consistent in prayer. Friends, prayer is is critical. It's a a pillar we cannot do without as a church. And so I want to urge you, do you you need to amp up the consistency of of your prayer life? I want to urge you to come out at 930. We pray every single Sunday morning at 9.30, whether the church is set up or not. Sometimes stuff doesn't get done on time because prayer is more important. Consistent in prayer is the way we need to live our lives as a church. Because patience needs prayer. And patience is the daughter of hope. It's a rejoicing that builds uh, these things into our community. Contribute to the needs of the saints. I love this passage. This is, this is, this is where Christian community, I think, can really uh, make good on what we say. It's generosity. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. A few weeks ago, we talked about eldership. We talked about elders needing and requiring um, hospitality as one of their is one of their gifts. They need to show hospitality. They need to make sure their home and their family is open for visitors, for strangers, for uh, those who need a meal, 
for those who need a warm place. Hospitality is key in Christian life, and it's a pillar of Christian leadership and devotion. But that doesn't mean that non-elders don't need to be hospitable or seek to help each other out. Paul says here, the whole community should look out for each other's needs, should contribute to the needs of the saints. Now you might think, well, that's wonderful. I give my tithe to the church or I give my contribution and absolutely that's wonderful. But I think here is an idea beyond your sort of allotted percentage, whatever it is that you give to the church. I think this has a lot more to do with the community looking out for each other. Because when you go to the box and you say, I'm gonna give you know 100 bucks or my 20 bucks or five bucks, and you say, I, I pray God uses this in his kingdom. I pray God uses this through Evergreen Chapel to whatever. But what if you're in the lobby and you're talking to somebody and they're talking about, well, my furnace just broke down this week. And you know they got three kids at home or a kid or a wife or whatever it is and it's winter. And oh, should I go back to the offering? Uh, what do I do? Contributing to the needs of the saints means looking out in those areas where we as brothers and sisters need help. We don't always need a real deep spiritual reason to look out for each other's needs. Uh, We just need to be aware of them. And you know what? Again, this requires conversations. It requires interaction. It requires conversations that are honest. Sometimes we're really embarrassed to talk about what our needs are, aren't we? We're embarrassed to show that we're needy. We're embarrassed to show that we don't have the money for something. We're embarrassed when our van breaks down and we can't afford to fix it. But you know what? That's why we have each other. We can help each other. We can fix that stuff. There's no way um, any of us should be in desperate need while others of us uh, live in total material ease. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. I have no problem with that. If you're wealthy financially, good for you. you and, And if you're more financially needy, good for you also. I mean, God has just allotted to us different stations in life, and that's fine. But you know what? As a Christian community, we need to demonstrate that our love is genuine by saying, I'll not just I'll pray for you. The book of James says, don't say to somebody who comes to you in need, don't say, I'll pray for you. Go and be warmed and be filled. I pray that God blesses you with a full stomach. Not when it's in your power to do it. Not, what's in your, not when it's in your power to be the answer to that prayer. And so a Christian community seeks to show hospitality, seeks to invite others over for meals or for times of rest or whatever. Hospitality is a massive indicator of who we are in Christ. So he moves on in in, in 14. He says, uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And so number three in this passage, it answers the question, how should love be expressed with humility, with humility that is demonstrated both inside the church and outside the church. How should genuine love be expressed? With humility uh, that shows towards friends and enemies. And he says right here in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How easy is that? It's not at all. Those who curse you are those who would put you down, those who would slander you, those who would uh, marginalize you, those who would uh, push you to the side devalue you, speak rudely and unkindly to you. But you know what? All of this is rooted in humility. All of these next um, exhortations are rooted in humility. Why? Because as human beings, we strive and, and we are tempted and we 
have urges to stand up for our own rights, to stand up for our own honor, to stand up for what we think we deserve. And Paul says the Christian community cannot be defined. Don't get up and, and, and curse them back. Don't get up and speak evil when it is in your power to speak good. So he says, in fact, bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. We want to protect our personal comforts. We want to defend ourselves and we want to retaliate in the same way that those who persecuted us did. But Paul says it ought not to be that way in your community. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Don't be prideful, but associate with the lowly. So here is just a barrage of humility. A person who is full of humility understands and lives this way. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This requires, again, it requires an interconnectedness. It requires a humility to hear and to, and to lift somebody else's situation above your own. To rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing means to take on their joy. It means to assume their joy. It means to get into their headspace. It means to put aside your own thoughts for a time to rejoice with them in something that is good. And by the same token, we're called to weep with those who weep. The idea here is that the Christian community, inside the Christian community, there should be none who mourn or go through grief alone. We should bear each other's burdens and our griefs and our tragedies and our losses and come alongside those who are suffering and, as it were, kind of get on our knees and get in sackcloth and say, I am grieving with you. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. These are the ways as a Christian community that we so often pull back and we give kind of a fake plastic love like, I hope things get better for you. I'll pray for you. And that's it. Prayer is critical, but Paul says you need to live that life with them. You need to go through that with them. Let love be genuine. So he goes on to talk about associating with the lowly. Don't be high-minded. Don't think of yourself in a high way, but think of yourself humbly and associate with the lowly. This is a cultural marker of the gospel, my friends. This is a cultural indication of what we believe about God. Our Bibles tell us that God makes no distinction between male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. And by the same token, we must also hate distinctions of class, distinctions of background, distinctions of financial stability. Paul says, associate with anybody. Don't let your personal pride, don't think of yourself so high that you ought not to associate with somebody that you deem as lower than yourself. Put distinctions like that out of your mind, Paul is saying. Don't have a mind that you need to remain in some class bubble. We say all are equal in the eyes of God. And so we need to express that. We don't just say it. We can't just say all are equal in the sight of God and then treat people as lesser than ourselves if we think it that way. And he also says, don't think of yourself as wise. I find this very interesting because don't, don't we like to kind of our, assess our own spiritual growth? Like say, oh, I'm a lot wiser than I used to be. I'm a lot more loving than I used to be. We, we're, we're proud of and we like to admire and appreciate our spiritual growth. And yet Paul here gives a warning against assessing your own wisdom. Don't think of yourself as wise. 
You know what I think the opposite of that would be? In, well, instead of assessing your wisdom, how about you just live wisely? There's actually no value in assessing your own godliness, per se, in this context, in the context of others. Just live that way. Just be wise. Just bless others around you. The point of this is that Christian sanctification, Christian holiness, you know, the way how mature we are in the Lord can very often be a way that we separate from one another. We judge each other. Oh, I'm, I definitely have a lot more humility than that person. It's the pride I can't be around them. And we separate and we judge each other based on who is more or less or so in these different spiritual ways. And yet, what we need to recognize is that as a community, the gifts God has given us, the wisdom that he's given us, the love that he's given us is always meant to bring us together, to build up the community, not to create divisions. So don't go around assessing your own wisdom, your own greatness. There's no room for that in a Christian community. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And then he kind of closes with this whole exhortation about persecutors again. Now, in our culture, we need to recognize that we, we truly know nothing about persecution. Um, I've said this before, but the church got kind of really up in arms when the government took away um, funding if you didn't approve their view on um, reproductive rights, as they call it. And, and we get really sassy, and we get like, oh, how, how can they take away our right to do this and that? And we, we think that that's persecution. Um, I would reject that and deny that. Now, I, I think it's, it's up to us to speak to the government and to make clear that their ways are evil when they are. But by no means do we, you know, show ourselves as martyrs here in Canada. We need to recognize that persecution all over the world is life or death. It's families being torn apart. It's livelihoods being lost all over the place. And uh, we know that that may be coming in Canada at, at some point, but it's how we think about those who oppose us. Persecution does come in very small uh, packages sometimes. And Paul gives this whole exhortation for those who would oppose the church. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that sounds like kind of vengeance in its own tricky, tongue-in-cheek way, but that's not what he's talking about. This whole passage is just saying, extend the Christian grace that you show each other also to your enemies. Don't have a separate category for how you live relative to those who persecute you or oppose you. Treat them the same way. Doesn't he even say give them something to eat? Show hospitality? Isn't that how we're supposed to treat each other? Yes. It's also how we supposed to, are supposed to treat our enemies. With hospitality, with love, with provision, with kindness. And he says, what is the result of that? That you will heap burning coals on his head. That's not to mean that you will wound him, but the burning coals are such that it's something that it might convict the persecutor. It might convict and, and push forward and open their eyes um, in terms of the way that they're living. Christians are not only given the power to live a better way than the world, but we're given a purpose behind that living. 
which is not, not only do we not destroy our enemies, but we live to the view that our enemies might be converted to Christ. We pray for those who persecute us. We bless them. We feed them. We think of them. Because not only are we not called to destroy or, or take out our own vengeance, but we even live in such a way hoping that they will be brought to light, that they will be brought to the truth of Jesus Christ. Again, our actions reflect our worldview. We can't go around saying that God is sovereign, that God is in charge, or that it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and then say, but you know, I think he's also allowing me to get this little bit of something against this enemy, this person at work who embarrassed me in front of my boss or whatever it is, that person on the team who just is undercutting my talent. We just want a little bit of that vengeance, don't we? But mostly to God. We can't say that God is sovereign. We can't say that God will have final justice and then live like we need it now. So I think put another way, we as a church community will not dine on the cup of bitterness or on the dish of revenge. Let love be genuine. What is genuine love? Leave room for God. Don't avenge yourself. This is a high calling. It's a very high calling. I I won't skirt around that or deny that, but we as a church must avoid dining on the cup of bitterness and the dish of revenge. This is all in line with rejoicing and hope, being patient in tribulation, isn't it? We can't be patient in tribulation if we don't trust that there is room for God's vengeance. It's all tied together. See, as we live as a Christian community, the way that we live reflects what we truly believe about God. Another outflow of this is that the activity of the Christian community, the activity, not just the words or the beliefs, but the activity of the Christian community, the application of our faith is a powerful force in the real world. For as we live, we will heap burning coals on our enemies. So what Paul is saying there is that our activity, the application of our faith, will have an impact on the lost world. Our faith is not just an imagined reality in our minds or in our hearts. If we express our faith in biblically um, appropriate and applicational ways, we will make an impact on the lost. Do you see that in the text? Do you see how our activity can be powerful? And then he goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This activity is summed up These are kind of the, this is the other bookend of the passage. So let love be genuine, and at the end, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good is also a summary of genuine love. Our activity is the embodiment, it's the application of the archetype man who overcame evil with good, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the way we live literally speaks to the reality of the gospel itself. That Christ, though he was reviled, though he was beaten, though he was persecuted, though he was crucified, never spoke an evil word, and yet was raised from the dead, completely overcame not only his enemies, not only the grave, but sin itself. Our entire faith is the archetypical description of overcoming evil with good. That is the power in what we believe. 
And so because of that, we must not privatize or relativize our faith as being just an inward reality, private only to me. Keeping it away from my work, keeping it away from my hobbies, keeping it away from all these other things. It's just me. It's just my own little holiness just on the inside. That's privatizing, relativizing the faith in a way that is completely unfaithful to its reality. Our faith has dramatic effect on the world around us if we apply it faithfully. It's not only expressed within our community to make a large difference, member to member, but also toward outsiders as light making contact with the darkness. And we see that in, as we went through the Gospel of John, the whole prologue is about light coming into darkness, making contact with darkness, exposing dark deeds. That is still the testimony and the witness and the function of the church today. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. And so I want to conclude by sharing three things. Um, because again, this is it's a very different type of passage than, than we've typically been in. It's a lot of exhortation. It's a lot of different things that none of us are going to be able to live out perfectly this week. We're all going to blow it on all of these. Okay? Just making that disclaimer now. Don't be discouraged when you are not fully embodying all of this truth. But I want to summarize to help you kind of categorize and, and maybe as a continual way to help you apply these uh, through a thought pattern. Number one in our conclusion is that love is not blind, neutral, or indifferent. But it's moral, it's upright, and it's active. Genuine love is not to passively approve of or give approval to anything and everything that comes through the door. To love somebody is not necessarily to ignore or pretend sin does not exist. Genuine love is first described by hating evil and holding fast to good. Let love be genuine. Is our love genuine? I think everyone, as I said at the beginning, wants to own this term. But the Bible's first comment on genuine love is that it has a moral direction. It has a moral compass. And Christians need to win this on the basis of terms. We so often get on our back foot because the things that we say, we are condemned by saying, that's not loving. That's not how you love people. And we say, I thought we were loving. What do we have? We got to use a different word. And we say, no, your definition of love is fake. It's fake. It's not real love to pretend that sin doesn't exist or evil doesn't exist. Love has a moral direction. That's the first thing we need to recognize about moving together as a loving community. It has a moral direction and it has not changed throughout all of time. It is not different today than it was 2,000 years ago as it was 5,000 years ago. Love is true. It's genuine if it is rooted in the truth of God. Number two is that Christian community is uncommon in the face of worldly human relationships. Christian community, I'll say that again, Christian community is uncommon in the face of worldly human relationships. By the grace of God, our gathering is built up upon values and commitments that you will not find anywhere else upon the same foundation that we have. Our foundation, as we heard last week, is the glory of God. We do things for a purpose that is beyond any of us, which means that our community is not so fragile as to be based on human ambition or human commitments, or human 
skills and gifts. Our community is not based on merely the best stuff that we bring. Our community is created by and based on the glory of God. And so for that reason, our community is uncommon to the world. I also want to stress that we don't preach, because this is a big buzzword. Isn't community such a big buzzword? I mean, now they talk about stores as being communities, right? People are desperate and looking for community, whether it's your outdoor community, whether it's your, you know, your skater community, whether it's your work and business community. People are looking for something to identify with. And so as the church, sometimes we kind of chase along and say, hey, we know about community too. But we don't preach hyper-communalism. We don't preach community for its own sake because it's just a thing that everybody wants right now. Hey, come check out our community. It's just a little bit better than your community. We don't preach it for that reason. Christian community is uncommon because of the foundation upon which it's built. We are a community that are not only redeemed and full of hope, but we are empowered and released for the purpose of spreading that hope. Did you hear that? Our community is not only redeemed and full of hope, but empowered and released for the purpose of spreading that hope. Number three observation in our conclusion is that the church will continue to exist inside and around a world which is plagued by sin. This scripture does not promise that our community will be isolated and in some way uh, specially removed and protected from the problems that the world will bring to us, the persecution that we might face, the opposition that we might face. The church is never designed to be removed from the context of the world. It's right there. As Paul, in the same breath, is talking about Christian community, how we love each other, he's also talking about how to love your enemies, how to love and care for the people who hate you, who want the worst for you. The church is still in contact with the darkness, and that's the way it's designed to be. That's the way we're called to live. And so as a church, we will not preach avoidance. We will not preach withdraw. We will not preach isolationism, which is also sometimes connected with hyper-communalism, isn't it? We want our churches in downtown areas. We want Christians to work where they meet unbelievers. We want to show that the kingdom is real and that the way that we live is connected with how we think about God. We won't be surprised by opposition. We will neither admit defeat because of opposition, but we will rather use our hope and our trust in God to create opportunities for the lost and the dying to meet God. That's what it's all about. Let love be genuine, for in doing so, you will create opportunities for the lost to come to God, to come to Christ. So that's forward together. Those are three small ways as a church that I think we can embrace and get our heads around to say, this is who we are. This is how we will live. These are our commitments as a church. Biblical eldership, faithful and selfless service toward each other in Jesus Christ, and genuine love expressed through real relationships, real struggles, real stuff. Genuine love is not something that sits behind a trophy case. It often gets dirty and muddy and twisted and beat up, but because it's genuine, it endures. And so I want to challenge us as a church to pursue um, and actively embrace a genuine love, though it might get more uncomfortable than what you're used to. Um, But that's what we want as a church.
I don't want to just be a comfortable church. I want to be a loving church, and I want to be a faithful church. And so we will strive to that end together. So let's, let's make sure that our culture at Evergreen is that of mutual submission to each other, care for each other, and love that is directed by the purity and truth of God's word, that we're humble and that in our humility, we are seeking to fulfill the Great Commission, which is to disciple the nations.